This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Our coverage of Pierre Rushing's case originally aired on July 8th, 2020. We will now re-release that episode with additional content to reflect some exciting new developments. In the early morning of April 15, 2011, Dewan Taylor stole an iPod from an Oakland drug dealer named C. Two of his other customers, Patrick Smith and Robert Green, gave C a ride in search of the iPod thief. They spotted Mr. Taylor, pulled up next to him, and C proceeded to shoot and kill him over this trivial slight. Nearly a week would go by before Robert Green would offer cops information and an uncertain description of the shooter. A few weeks and several descriptions later, Green would claim to have seen C wearing a red hat. A few days after that, police would approach Pierre Rushing, a man who had never been known as C, but wearing a red hat. They'd bring Pierre's juvie photo and his name to Robert Green, who went on to identify him as the shooter. Despite a solid alibi, no physical evidence whatsoever or anything to corroborate Robert Greene's highly questionable identification, Pierre Rushing's burgeoning rap career and promising future were stolen by Greene and the criminal legal system. He's currently serving 50 to life for a frivolous and tragic crime committed by a drug dealer named C. Patrick Smith has since signed affidavits and testified to Pierre's innocence and another of C's customers that night has bravely set a legal name to the culprit. And even though Mr. Rushing did not name C, we have censored his name from this episode for Mr. Rushing's safety. Meanwhile, the state of California continues to ignore evidence of Pierre's actual innocence and to fight his honest attempts to regain his freedom. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me, and today we're going to tell you about the case of Pierre Rushing. We'll speak with one of his post-conviction attorneys, Marvin Liu, as well as taking a call from Kern Valley Correctional in California to hear from Pierre himself. This is Global Challenge. You have a free-told call from Pierre Rushing. 
This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hello, good morning. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. I mean, I'm sorry you're here under these circumstances, but I'm definitely glad you're here. I know we have limited time, so let's get right into it. Today's episode, we're going to tell the story of the man we have on the phone now, Pierre Rushing, who's serving 50 years. The nightmare starts on April 15, 2011 at 3.45 a.m. when there's a murder. But let's go back to your childhood because you had a difficult upbringing and you were coming out of that and building a career in music when it all went haywire. So I grew up in Oakland, California. My father was a absentee in and out of prison. Um, my mother was addicted to crack cocaine. So I don't want to say like any other Oakland kid, but as, I mean, a lot of a lot of kids in the, in the that grew up in the 90s were just products of our environment. We grew up looking at things that we believed to be right, but we, as we matured, we get to see that they were really wrong. And how did you get into music? My auntie used to work for Keith Sweat. Uh, her name was Tracy Rush, and she's since passed since 2013. But just being around her, she took me under her wing, just taking me to the studio with her. That's how I became uh, addicted to music. Is it fair to say by 2011, things were starting to look up for you in terms of possibly building a career? And Yeah. When I was arrested for this case, actually, friends of mine had said that the police were looking for me for this crime. And we all laughed about it because everybody knew that I couldn't have done it. I had been rapping and going to the studio, staying consistent, shooting videos. Um, and actually, when I was arrested, I was opening up for a Bay Area legend by the name of San Quinn. And uh, we had a big, like, like, like tour van with my, my pictures on it, promoting my music and everything. So... Yeah, it was coming up for me. Yeah, you were on, exactly, you were on your way up. And, and then everything went completely haywire. Now let's turn the conversation to Marvin Liu. Marvin is a criminal defense attorney of some repute, and he has been representing Pierre for some time now. But let's just paint a picture of what happened. The date was April 15th, 2011. And uh, what happened was two individuals by the name of Patrick Smith and Robert Green were doing crack cocaine for the day and a half leading up to this young man's killing. And Patrick Smith and Robert Green went to an apartment in Oakland to purchase more crack cocaine. Patrick Smith was driving. Robert Green stayed in the car while Patrick Smith went up to the apartment to purchase more drugs. So Patrick Smith meets up with his drug dealer. Patrick Smith knows him as C, the letter C, who is the actual person responsible for the murder of Dewan Taylor. While Patrick Smith was in the apartment, there were several other people present, and Mr. Taylor left the apartment. Shortly after Mr. Taylor left, then C's iPod turned up missing, and someone in the apartment said that Mr. Taylor had taken C's iPod. What happened next was Patrick Smith, the shooter, C, and another individual who was also charged as a co-defendant named Andre Morris, they all left the apartment and went and got in Patrick Smith's car to go find Mr. Taylor, who had uh, allegedly taken C's iPod. Robert Green was waiting in the car, sitting in the front passenger seat. So Pat Smith drives around the corner. They see Mr. Taylor walking down the street and C or Andre Morris, Pat Smith wasn't sure which, told him to stop the car. 
C and Andre Morris got out of the car, confronted Mr. Taylor, and C shot and killed Mr. Taylor on the sidewalk in front of a fast food restaurant. They then got back into the car. Pat Smith drove a short distance. Both C and Mr. Morris got out of the car and ran away. So that, that's the factual backdrop for this thing. Follow along here, because Pierre, who we're on the phone with now, had no connection to the victim, no knowledge of the actual perpetrator. And he was at his grandmother's at the time with a young lady named Lauren Richardson on the time and date of the murder. Have you ever had a nickname of C before? Never, never. I've always went by the name of Stank, or people from my neighborhood used to call me P-Stank, being for my first name is Pierre. I've never, never went by the name of C. So what happened? How did you end up getting wrongfully convicted here? Well, one of the pastors, Robert Green, he goes to the police like five days after he allegedly sees this crime. And he tells them that, hey, he's seen this murder and a guy named C commits this murder. He gives the police multiple different descriptions. I believe his first description is 5'8", light-skinned, 120 pounds. I haven't been 120 pounds since I was 10 years old, let alone at 19 years old. And I'm not light-skinned. The second time I believe he sees the police, he switches it up again. So allegedly he says he sees C on April 30th, which would have been 15 days after the crime. And he went back to the police and said, you know what, I lied again. I believe he was six foot two, brown skinned, uh, and it had on red shirt and a red hat. I- I'm not sure what kind of lineups they were showing him, but he still couldn't identify who they believed to be C. The police seeing an area that he said that he had seen C in, I believe it was May 3rd, wearing a red hat. And they stopped me. And when they stopped me, they said, what is your name? I don't lie to the police. Pierre Russian is my name. I said, hey, we're looking for a guy that beat a guy up. I haven't beaten a guy up. And then they leave. When they take that name back to, I believe, Robert Green, who was at the police station, and they show him a picture four days after he's seen a guy with a red hat, he said, you know what? Yeah, that's him. That's he. And that's how the whole web is spun. Them looking for a guy with a red hat four days after Robert Green says he's seen this guy. And a month after the crime, when they first questioned you, they wanted to know what you were doing on the day of the crime. But when they were asking you this question, it was already five weeks later, right? And this is a trick that they use sometimes. You're, like they, you're supposed to remember exactly. What, like I'll ask anybody in the audience right now. What were you doing? Let's go back 35 days from whatever day you're listening to this. Tell me right now what you were doing at at a particular time on that day, and I'll give you a dollar. Because that's impossible, but it is very effective because then they can say you lied because there's no way anyone could possibly remember that unless it was their birthday or some other like really important day, right? April 15th, as you would have it, is my father's birthday. So Without me even thinking, you say April 15th, hey, that's nothing. I, I, I was with my dad. I seen my dad on, that, on, on his birthday. Not one time in any trial transcript, police evidence, or discovery do they ever say, where were you, 3.45 a.m. So once they say, no, you weren't with your dad, I also remember that I had a traffic stop that day. And they went and checked, and it, it, it showed that I was telling the truth. But they say, no, nah, not at that time. It took me, I believe, my attorney for about a week of jogging my memory to figure out where did I sleep at 3.45 a.m. that morning. And I remembered it was my grandma's house because my mom came to me that morning and said, what are you going to get your dad for his birthday? That's how I was able to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But by that time, it was trial. So they, they looked at it as if, oh, this is a third alibi. Well, no, I've given you everywhere I went from April 15th. And so that's how they played it. 
which is very nefarious because they see that I was trying to tell them everything. At the time that this crime was committed, at 3.45 in the morning, now we know what you were doing when you were supposedly out shooting somebody who you never knew and don't know and still don't know and never will know. Well, April 14th, I was shooting a video. And if you go on YouTube right now, the song was called Young Stank Take a Trip. Lauren Richardson was an associate of the cameraman, helped shoot the video. She was also my girlfriend. April 14th, going into April 15th, she came to my uh, grandma's house roughly about 9.45, around 10 o'clock, and we spent the night. We enjoyed each other's company. We uh, did what any other boyfriend and girlfriend would do. Hello, my name is Lauren Richardson. I am an Oakland resident and current legal apprentice. Um, I entered the field with a lot of motivation from the tragic situation that happened with Pierre Rushing. Um, I originally was into video. On April 14th, Pierre went to shoot a video. It was called Take a Trip. We were super excited because he had so much support from our neighborhood. Everybody knew he was a great rapper. So when he finally shot the video, we were super excited. We went back to his grandmother's house afterwards just to kind of recap. And we stayed up all night watching movies, laughing, making plans for the future. We, you know, did what couples do late night. And I left early in the morning because I had to take my son to school. And um, it was some weeks after that, he kind of disappeared. You know, when somebody else found me and was like, um, you know, he's in jail. I'm like, what? Because I was kind of mad. You know, I was, I, I thought he ghosted me, to be honest. So it was no way that he could have committed the crime. I have never felt as powerless as I felt in this situation to express reality and be believed. And, you know, the, this huge power structure for them to be able to create a false reality, like even with the witness, the witness is not a credible witness, nowhere near as credible as I am, because I'm not going to go perjure myself. I'm not going to risk my life to keep a killer out of jail. So for me to go up there in front of all of these people and for them to not take my word for it when they had no other evidence, it bothers me to this day. It's a, it's a big part of the motivation for me to go into this apprenticeship program because I want to learn how to speak up for other people who can't speak up for themselves because this has to stop. They ruined an entire family. The idea that we in this country can sentence somebody like you, a promising young man, uh, with his life ahead of him to 50 years based on the testimony of an admitted crackhead who was up for two days, who changed his story four times, really should make everybody a little scared. Pierre, can you tell us a little bit about the trial itself? The killing is on camera. When I heard they had it on camera, I started to kick my feet up and just wait for the trial days because I'm like, if it's on camera, I'm, I'm going home. I never in a million years imagined that the camera would be low quality or, or you really can't see anything on the camera. You see a vehicle pull up and it's just, it's just grainy, so you can't really see anything. And I remember my heart just dropping because I knew that that was what was supposed to exonerate me. So they had no evidence, no corrupt, no, no physical. They have the murder vehicle with 12 fingerprints inside the car and say I got in and out of that car four times. None of the fingerprints match mine. 
One of the prosecution's witnesses was a lady by the name of DeCarla Smith, who said she witnessed the crime. Her and Pat Smith were best friends. She had been in that car the week before. When the police forensic pathologist detained the car on April 22nd, they found DeCarla's fingerprints in that car. Therefore, when she testified she hadn't been in the car seven days prior to the killing, that means that the car couldn't have possibly been wiped down. And if the car wasn't wiped down, and you found 12 to 14 fingerprints in that car, per Robert Green's testimony, I got in and out of that car four times, and I killed this guy with no gloves. Why aren't my fingerprints on the car? Second, if Robert Green is to believe, why would you ever call me 5'8", light-skinned, 120 pounds? Why would you ever change it to 5'10", 160 pounds? In that preliminary hearing, when the judge allowed me to leave the courtroom, they brought Robert Green in. They said, could you please describe the killer? This guy switched it up to 6'2", 220 pounds. This guy is not to be believed. He was addicted to crack and heroin. Said he had been up for two days off crack and heroin. and hadn't been to sleep. Seven-time felon. Third, you have to call the Smith, another prosecution's witness. I didn't see him. I don't know who that is. Well, yeah. I mean, our standard in this country is supposed to be reasonable doubt, and this goes way beyond that standard. I had hoped that, you know, I would, I would, I would be exonerated. And did you have proper representation? Now, I went to a trial with a public defender, and I went speedy trial. I was arrested in May. I was convicted in August. And the reason I went speedy trial is because I felt like I had nothing to hide. I didn't do it. So why would I wait where I see in my county people wait four or five years to fight the case because they're trying to wait for the best deal? The first day of trial, I remember the judge saying something like, hey, I know the DA is going to give you a deal. She looked to your left, get a deal, because I know that he's going to give you one. And I just remember shaking my head, no, 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 because why would I take time for something if I didn't do it? They know I'm not seen. So they want to know if we call in the urban community if I'm going to snitch. I know a lot of C's. That's that's for one. For two, it's not my job to do the, the police's job for them. You know, so if I wasn't there, what do you expect me to do? Or maybe it could have been this guy. Maybe it could be this guy. If I do that, I'm worse than Robert Green because you were not there. And they know that. And they feed off of that. Yeah, jailhouse snitches has just sort of become like standard operating procedure. Correct. It's a nightmare. It's a living nightmare. But that was that was the sum of the trial. Yeah, that is a nightmare scenario. So the jury goes out. When they came back in, what was that moment like when they actually found you guilty of a crime you didn't commit? When they came back with it, it was... It was weird because the whole trial, I had 20 to 30 people every single day of my of my trial, friends from the neighborhood, family, girlfriend, associates. But on that day, nobody was in the courtroom, not even the victim's family, nobody from my family. That, that was just like a sense of loneliness, a sense of like me against the world because you're sitting there convicting me for a crime that I didn't commit. And I know that you know I didn't commit this crime. And I couldn't even look back to look in the eyes of my mother, my father, my grandmother. And I felt like that was already set up. I'm like, why wasn't even the victim's family? Like, where was... It was just... It's a feeling that I never want to feel again. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, 
The AIG Pro Bono Program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Marvin, take it back to how you first met Pierre, how you first became aware of his case and why you chose to get involved in this case. You must get hit with cases all the time. I actually came to represent Pierre uh, after a different attorney, Stephen Bedrick, who was handling his direct appeal in state court, also filed a habeas corpus petition in the California State Court of Appeal. What is the literal interpretation of uh, habeas corpus? Habeas corpus means to produce the body in Latin. And what that means is that it's an allegation by us that Pierre is being unlawfully incarcerated. And once I dug into the case and, and reviewed the evidence in Pierre's case and, and did some investigation of my own, that very much turned out to be true. What went wrong here? I think a number of things went wrong, but most critically, uh, there was evidence which could have exonerated Pierre, which was not introduced. The only witness in the case, Robert Green, testified that Pierre was supposedly the, the person who committed this crime. That is the only evidence in the case and in the trial against Pierre. That witness testified that the person who committed this crime was talking on his cell phone a mere minutes before shooting the victim in this case. Pierre's phone records were available and that was part of the habeas petition and, and got him a hearing subsequently. And those phone records established conclusively that Pierre was not talking on his cell phone at the time when the perpetrator was. And if those records were introduced, I think that it, it would be a pretty compelling piece of evidence to establish that in fact, Pierre is not the person responsible for this murder, but they weren't introduced. The jury never heard of them. What about the fingerprint stuff? How did they manage to get around that? That seems like that could have been enough on its own. How did he not leave his fingerprints? Is he a ghost? Well, the fingerprint evidence was introduced by way of a stipulation for the evidence technician who actually gathered the latent fingerprints from the car that was used in the homicide. That witness did not testify. Rather, Pierre's trial attorney chose to have that evidence admitted by way of an agreement with the prosecutor, simply the conclusion that Pierre's fingerprints were not, in fact, recovered from that car. And had that witness been called, it would have led to another important piece which was not introduced and not known to the jury. That evidence technician also collected DNA from that car, swabbed all of the areas of that car where the killer sat just before the murder occurred. In addition, there was a cigarette butt that was recovered from the floorboard of that car, which was also swabbed for DNA. That DNA evidence was not tested uh, in time for Pierre's trial, and that was also the subject of his subsequent habeas petition. So what happened was after we uh, obtained an evidentiary hearing in state court to attempt to prove Pierre's innocence. As I started reviewing the case materials, I realized that this DNA evidence existed, which would completely exonerate him, and no one had tested it. So uh, there's a procedure under California law that allows the convicted individual to ask the court to now have that evidence tested because it would prove that he's innocent. Uh, the government opposed our efforts to have that evidence tested. And ultimately, the judge in this case refused 
to allow us to test that evidence. I then appealed that refusal and the court of appeal refused to allow us to test that evidence. Why is it that they wouldn't want to have the DNA evidence in the case tested if they're so confident that in fact he's the perpetrator? I never can understand in any case, especially in a case as serious as this one, a murder case, why they wouldn't want to have every you know, stone turned over and have every piece of evidence tested so that they can find out not only that in this case, Pierre didn't do it, but they could find out who actually did. Marvin, Yolanda Washington and Patrick Smith are pivotal players in this whole wrongful conviction. Can you explain their role in what went wrong here? Sure. Of course, uh, Pat Smith was a charged co-defendant in the case at the time of Pierre's trial. So he did not testify at the trial. He had his Fifth Amendment right. But after Pierre's trial was long over and after Patrick Smith resolved his part of the case for accessory after the fact, he then signed an affidavit which helped Pierre get an evidentiary hearing. He indicated both in his affidavit as well as in his testimony at the evidentiary hearing that his drug dealer is a man who goes by the name of C. And that individual was not Pierre Rushing. Pat Smith at the hearing refused to name that individual because he was afraid for his life. But one of the people who was in that apartment was a woman by the name of Yolanda Washington. And she also did not testify at trial. But after Pierre was convicted, she signed an affidavit under penalty of perjury indicating that she, of course, having been in that apartment, knew who C was. She obviously knew who Andre Morris was. And what she said in her affidavit was that Pierre Rushing is not the drug dealer who shot and killed Mr. Taylor. Pierre Rushing is not C. But that's not all. Indeed, Yolanda Washington uh, went so far as to identify who that person was. Now, before we get into this, let me make one thing clear, which is that Pierre does not know the identity of the perpetrator of this homicide. Yolanda Washington, in her affidavit, did name that individual who goes by the nickname C. In fact, his first name is His name is And of course, it would make perfect sense that he would go by the nickname C because his name is Pierre Rushing does not have a C in his name. And C has never been Pierre's nickname because Pierre is not the person responsible for this killing. That affidavit was part of what enabled Pierre to get a hearing in Superior Court. Unfortunately, Miss Washington was a homeless individual at that time, and my investigator was essentially unable to locate her to get her to testify in court. So I filed a motion essentially asking that her affidavit be considered because she was unavailable, and that request was denied. Wow. It's pretty courageous, even after the fact, that these two people both were willing to put their own lives at risk to identify someone who they know is a killer. And I think that speaks volumes to the veracity of their statements. For me, growing up, and I don't mean to say it like this because of the social climate that we have going on in the United States right now, but growing up, I've always felt like it's been them against us. Not because I grew up hating the police, but I just watched how they did those that looked like me. Here it is, we're talking about a guy gives a description on April 
30th of a red hat and you see me on May 30th and say, well, hey, that's a guy wearing a red hat. Let me stop him. And now my whole life is, is spinning in that spider web. Not a shred of physical evidence links me to this crime. And if it could happen to me, I'm, it, it can happen to anybody. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, we, you know, every day there's more information coming out. And I'm grateful that the public is starting to have a really heightened awareness to the fact that Black people, let's just put it right out there, are so much more likely to be um, victimized by not just police brutality, but by wrongful convictions, by wrongful prosecutions, being forced into taking plea bargains to things they didn't do. The whole system is stacked. Wrongful convictions, though, do happen to, to people from all races, all nationalities, all different creeds, all different religions. I mean, we've had people on the show from every walk of life. I mean, you can take the case of uh, Ryan Ferguson in the 2001 Columbus, Missouri killing. Right? He was wrongfully convicted, and he's a white man, you know what I mean? Like, wrongful convictions don't have uh, a skin color. I mean, it's, it's usually what I'm going through, eyewitness misidentification. Uh, invalid forensic science, false confessions, you know, police or prosecutor misconduct. It's a slew of things on why wrongful convictions happen. And then there's just laziness, too. It's like, oh, we got a guy with a red hat. Good enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. The idea, yeah. But, but the idea that the justice system at every level, and now we see it on video of how the system treats people like yourself, like George Floyd, like so many others, as expendable, disposable, And yet, I mean, there are very, very real consequences. That's why we're on the phone with you from prison now, where you and I might be working together on a record instead. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If you have any doubt in my innocence, I would actually just think on these key points. What guilty person would push for DNA testing of the materials that were sought out the vehicle? If I wasn't innocent, what guilty man would push for the enhancement of the of the video? If I wasn't innocent, what man would have pushed for the phone records? I'm innocent. I didn't commit this crime. I have nothing to do with this crime. Thank you.
Pierre, last time we spoke, Dewan Taylor's actual murderer, the guy known as C. Now, his co-conspirator, Andre Morris, as well as an accessory after the fact, Patrick Smith, they had both come forward to definitively state that you had absolutely nothing to do with Dewan's murder and are not, in fact, C. That's not you. You and C are different people. But for their own safety, understandably, they would not name C. However, a woman named Yolanda Washington, who was prepared to do just that, she couldn't be located for your evidentiary hearing. And then Smith and Morris were just explained away. And additionally, your request for DNA testing against items from the car was denied. And you're right. Why would a guilty person, what guilty person would be seeking DNA testing on items that might contain their own DNA? Do you want to cement your own guilt if you were doing that, if you actually had a guilty conscience? Or why would they try to enhance crime scene video if they knew it was going to point to their guilt? All of this in addition to how flimsy the state's evidence was to begin with. The sole witness, I'm talking about Robert Greene, of course, the sole witness who cooperated with police to avoid being charged as well, whose description of C changed three, count them, three times. And one of those times, Greene said that C had worn a red hat. Again, Robert Greene knew C, knew just how dangerous he really was, yet he felt quite comfortable identifying you, Pierre, after you were picked up while wearing a red hat. Keep in mind, they stopped me two days after that description was given. So I guess this quote-unquote killer was supposed to have been wearing the same clothes and hat for two days straight. I mean, like, it, it, it was bananas from the beginning. I've never fit a description of being 5'8", light-skinned. I've never rocked a bald head. I haven't been 120 pounds since I was 10 years old. I mean, it's just, it's been bananas from the game. Nobody can convince me that he thought I was ever the guy in the car with him. Because... You weren't. What you were was you were with Lauren that night at your grandmother's house. And her testimony was corroborated by the absence of your fingerprints in the vehicle. Since your episode aired in 2020, your case was picked up from Marvin Liu, pro bono, by the way, by one of the biggest and baddest law firms in the country, Greenberg Traurig. And one of their star attorneys, Jordan Grotzinger, has been hard at work. I mean, <laughs> that's an understatement. Yeah. He's a beast. We have a great investigator by the name of Grant Fine overturning all the stones in the case, getting affidavits that we hadn't gotten before, talking to witnesses that hadn't spoken before, and tracked Robert Green down. I was sitting there on my bunk, and Jordan Grassinger, he sent me a message, and he just was saying, Robert Green every candidate, and I had to look at the message twice, take it all in. And I was like, damn, like I thought it was like some kind of like April Fool's joke or something. And I just immediately dropped a tear. So from what I've been told, it was just like, you know, weighing on his soul. He finally did the right thing, which is tell the truth. I mean, I've gotten what anybody in my position of, of fighting a wrongful conviction has asked for. The one and only witness has fully recanted. So I'm both well, very happy for you. But also, I got to admit, I'm confused. Why am I, why are we talking to you over a prison phone? It seems like that should have been it. It should have resolved the case. You should have walked out the door. And now there's actually literally zero evidence against you. So where does that leave your case? We're in court and we're trying to get this case dismissed speaking with a progressive DA by the name of Pamela Price. And she has eyes on it. I don't have the, the declaration in front of me, but 
Robert Green says he knew the whole time that it wasn't me. And it just gave validation of what I've been saying the whole time that I didn't commit this crime. And, and there was no way that I would have or could have committed this crime, as well as one of the guys that were actually convicted after me, Andre Morris. He did a, a written declaration and said that he was a participant in the killing and that I wasn't with him. That was that. So we're just waiting and praying for good news very soon. Well, let's hope that Pamela Price doesn't just put on the progressive sort of bona fides at election time, right? But but that she takes this case as what it is, which is an example of why we need prosecutors with the brains and the heart that we know she possesses. And by the way, it shouldn't take a reform-minded prosecutor when we're dealing with actual innocence. Every prosecutor should want to get the innocent guy out and go after the person that actually did it. And this is a guy whose name we know and we know they know. So what is the holdup? I believe Pamela Price is under a lot of scrutiny. She's cleaning up Alameda County and she's being took to town by some as being too soft on crime. When really there's all type of guys walking around here, three strikes and weed and all type of just craziness. She's by the book. And by her being by the book, it's making her seem as if she's soft on crime. If you don't have enough evidence to convict beyond a reasonable doubt, she's not taking it. And to some, that, that, that seems as if she's soft on crime. In my instance, as far as my habeas petition, I haven't heard from Pamela Price. And, and Jordan hasn't either. She's aware of the situation. She's aware of the Joe Rogan podcast. She's aware of the wrongful conviction podcast. She's aware of the Breakfast Club interview. And she still hasn't responded to Jordan Grassinger. And she's supposed to file some kind of rebuttal to my release. I'm not sure where we're at. We're close to justice, but I still feel like they're trying to hold on to something that they know is wrong. Because why are they not talking to us? Why are they filing a rebuttal? What are you rebutting? You have every single person that was in the vehicle except the killer herself that have done sworn declarations and given testimony that I did not commit the crime. Everybody has said, wrong guy. There is no physical or tangible or corroborating evidence that goes with this case. What are you rebutting? I don't get it either. I mean, are they going to say we don't find Robert Greene's recantation credible? And if so, was he then credible before when he was facing accessory after the fact, doing all kinds of drugs? And, and don't forget, he changed his description of C three times. A guy who he knew to be capable of murder, yet he was brave enough to identify you, a man who did not fit any one of his multiple descriptions. You know, it's hard not to think that maybe he thought that you were the type of guy who wouldn't come after him, which leads us to believe that you were not a dangerous guy in the first place, never were, and never will be. I mean, this conviction happened well over a decade before Pam Price was elected. She could fix this. It wouldn't reflect badly on her or her office, because after all, it was one of her predecessors that made these mistakes. It was a lady by the name of Nancy O'Malley. So I... I understand she has a lot to go on, but it's like Jordan says, there is no case in Alameda County that is as compelling in an innocence claim as mine. So is there anything our audience can do to help? Is there a petition to sign at a very minimum? I think we're past signing a petition. I believe that we have to do as Huey P. Newton said. We have to agitate. We have to call. We have to email. We have to show up unannounced to the DA's office. Some might say that's that's hurtful. Sitting in jail for 12 years with a 50 to life sentence is hurtful. Dewan Taylor's family deserves 
justice. Like this is not justice. So I would ask that they call Pamela Price's office and ask for justice for Pierre Rushing. All right, this is all hands on deck, people. We can we can do this. We put out the original coverage three and a half fucking years ago. All right, so we're gonna post her office's number, her email, her snail mail address, all of it in the bio. And and remember, be respectful when you call. It doesn't help anyone, nor does she deserve. To, everyone deserves to be treated with respect in that office. Whoever answers the phone, so please keep that in mind. But do call write, email, whatever. And with that, we're going to move on to closing arguments, where I thank you, Pierre, for calling in once again. You know, you're in our thoughts here at Wrongful Conviction more often than you know. And now I'm just going to sit back and listen to anything else you want to say. I would just like to speak directly to her. Yeah, go for it. Pamela Price, Robert Green get his declaration in February. When he lied on me, they instantly put a warrant out the same day. That's taking longer to exonerate me than it took to convict me. There's no evidence in this case. Rely on your common sense. Rely on your, your expertise in the civil rights arena. Rely on your intelligence. I didn't commit this crime. You know I didn't commit this crime. Every millisecond that passes by is an injustice. I could be your son. I could be your little brother. I could be your nephew. I do not deserve to continue to sit here while you and your office plays politics. I have a family to get to. My little sister was murdered in 2018. My niece has no mother. She has no father. She needs me. My family needs me. My mother needs me. My father needs me. The community needs me. I have a story. I can stop a lot with my story. I'm asking you to please step up and do the right thing. Give Jordan Grassinger a call. And please do the right thing. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kathleen Fink, as well as my fellow executive producers, Jeff Kempler, Kevin Wardis, and Jeff Kleiber. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us across all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company No. 1. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.